I believe in Jesus is the topic today, and I'm going to start by reading, I guess it'll be on the screen, from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Paul wrote to the Christians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing in taking, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So yeah, we've heard from the creed that we all read out together that Christian belief extends, of course, from God the Father Almighty to Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And the Philippians passage that I just read talks about Jesus Christ as having equality with God. And here's the point of the talk. Is it justified to believe in Jesus? And if we do, how should it affect our lives? Now, both the Creed and the Philippians emphasize the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the last judgment. These four together combine Jesus' life on earth and his heavenly role with past, present, and future included. I think I could have added the, uh, the, the incarnation as well, of course. They both also stress that Jesus is by very nature God, quotes, or of one being with the Father, to quote again from the Creed. So as we begin to address belief in Jesus, let's start at the most basic level. Did Jesus exist? Or is he just a figment of the imagination? Is he no more real than Batman or Frodo Baggins? or indeed the fairies at the bottom of the garden. Lots of people think this is the case. They think the Gospels are just propaganda. They're skeptical about even whether Jesus existed. Well, I'm gonna tell you two great ways to convince yourself and other people otherwise, in other words, that Jesus did exist. Let's start off with the harder one. You need to read. N.T. Wright's masterpiece, Jesus and the Victory of God and the Resurrection of the Son of God. This is wonderful academic writing, full of footnotes and detail. <laughs> Wouldn't you just love it? The master historian, theologian, professor at St. Andrew's University, the former Bishop of Durham, shows us in these books in great detail the factual accuracy of the gospel, but reading them does take some time. The other option is to go on the Alpha course with Dan, starting on the 23rd. 
I really want to encourage you to go on the Alpha course. That's especially the case, of course, if you're seeking faith, but also if you are a believer. I believe that as a follower of Jesus, the material on the Alpha course will really strengthen your faith. Not only that, it will help you to discuss fruitfully with people who don't yet know Jesus. The very first teaching session of the Alpha addresses the very issue we're looking at here. Who is Jesus? And without going into detail, but I am going to pillage one of the Alpha lectures, there's a great deal of historical evidence for Jesus' life on earth. Not only the Gospels, but also Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius, Jewish historian Josephus, who were not Christians, attest that Jesus was an authentic figure in world history. And as regards the Gospels, Sir Patrick Kenyon, historian, argues that these are just extraordinary in terms of ancient texts. We have copies of the Gospels that were published soon after they were written, completely different from many ancient texts that everyone thinks are totally authentic. So what he said was, both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. So yeah, some people might accept that. They might agree that Jesus was human, and indeed the Gospels say that he had a body, he was at times tired and hungry, he experienced human emotions, he got angry sometimes, he loved, he had sad experiences, he was tempted, he learned, he worked, just like us. The singer Billy Connolly, the Scots guy, I can't do the accent, said, I can't believe in Christianity, but I think Jesus was a wonderful man. So yeah, does our belief stop there? Or do we believe he was the unique son of God? He is the unique son of God, the second person of the Trinity, which is what both the creed and the Philippians too are saying. Jesus believed this himself. He said, for example, in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He claimed to forgive sins, including those that people had done to each other, of course. And as C.S. Lewis points out, in the mouth of any speaker who is not God, this would imply a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Think about it. Dan treads on Richard's toe. Can I forgive Dan for treading on Richard's toe? Richard can. Jesus can. Now, as Nicky Gombel points out in the Alpha Course, many people, some in psychiatric hospitals, are deluded. They think they're Napoleon or the Pope, but they're not. The question then is, was this the case when Jesus claimed to be the unique Son of God, God made flesh? There are only three possible answers to this. First possibility, Jesus' claims were untrue. He wasn't the Son of God, but he knew that, in which case he was an imposter, an evil imposter, leading people astray. Second possibility, he didn't know. In, case he, in that case, he was deluded. He was insane. Third possibility, the claims are true. 
C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer, wrote this, either Jesus was or is the Son of God, or else he was insane or evil. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The acceptance that Jesus is the Son of God is a leap of faith, clearly, but I believe it's not one without evidence. Here's a few points. His teaching, which is the foundation of our civilization, it's been 2,000 years. Lots of progress, we think, but no one has improved on Jesus' moral teaching. The miracles, and most of all, his willingness to die on the cross for humankind. His character, which Bernard Levin, most, who's not a Christian, summarized as follows, and I think this is a beautiful passage. He said this, Is not the nature of Christ enough to pierce to the soul anyone with a soul to be pierced? He still looms over the world, his message still clear, his pity still infinite, his consolation still effective, his words still full of glory, wisdom, and love. And there was the fulfillment in Jesus' life of no less than 300 Old Testament prophecies. We have to give special attention to the resurrection. St. Paul told us, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You may as well go home. If Christ was not resurrected, 1 Corinthians 15, that quote. In the Alpha, they point out in much more detail than I can now, four aspects of the resurrection story that can help us and others to be convinced of its truth. The fact that Jesus was absent from the tomb, there's no good explanation other than the resurrection. His appearances to the disciples and their subsequent willingness to die for their belief in Jesus and his resurrection. The fact the church grew at an amazing pace, beginning from a handful of uneducated fishermen and tax collectors. And of course, Christian experience of knowing Jesus personally that's open to anyone who accepts him as their saviour and lord. The former Chief Justice of England, Lord Darling, said this, in its favour as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict. The resurrection story is true. And C.S. Lewis concluded, we are faced then with a frightening alternative. Either Jesus was or is exactly what he said, or else he was insane, or something worse. However strange and terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So belief in Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, his status as God's son is rational and sensible for those who look into it. There's a step of faith, certainly, but not an irrational one. I think this, in turn, can give us confidence in what's written in the Creed and the Philippians about his ascension, his future return, the last judgment. We can read the Creed with confidence. But how far does all this get us? So what? Let me remind you 
of who the first to believe in Jesus were? Can you guess? Who said, as reported in Mark 1.24, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Yes, it was the demons that Jesus drove out from a possessed man in the synagogue. The demons were his first witness. Indeed, as James writes, chapter 2, verse 19, you believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. The belief in Jesus as the Son of God is the foundation for the Christian faith. <coughs> and anyone who is a Christian, of course, goes one step beyond the demons, praise be to God, by accepting the salvation that he offered, trust in his sacrifice on the cross, repenting of what we've done wrong. That's the first step, of course, of the Christian faith that many or all of us here have done. But out of gratitude, we are called to go further. We are called to an appropriate response. If you like, the foundation is the acceptance of Jesus as your Savior and Lord. But there's a building to be built on top of that foundation. James goes on to say, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Notice the creed doesn't mention deeds, it doesn't mention quite a lot of things. Philippian hints at it in the matter as Paul writes, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He points to Jesus taking on the very nature of a servant and humbling himself. Let me clarify, I'm not saying that it's through good works that we get saved. That's something that we do out of gratitude but it's something that would show a good faith, generally. I think the passage that clarifies the matter of what belief in Jesus should really mean in our lives is 1 Corinthians 13. We've heard it many times at weddings, haven't we? And yeah, like, Chris, like children rushing to open the chocolate box, we love to get onto those wonderful words about love. Verses 4 to 8a, and we're going to look there in a minute. But recall that the chapter starts by listing some of what we would think are amazing acts of Christian commitment. Paul talks, says this, if I speak in the tongue of men, tongues of men and of angels, if I have a gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast. Amazing things, isn't it? Wouldn't you be impressed by someone who did all that? But what does Paul say? He says, if I do not have love, I am a resounding gong and a clashing cymbal. If I do not have love, I am nothing. If I do not have love, I gain nothing. If I do not have love, that's not to say we're not called to deeds of Christian charity, as James had in mind. Rather that we have to have the right attitude, we couldn't be grudging about it. It's not hard to think of examples of what Paul was thinking about. Suppose you care for someone who's ill, 
but you're resentful and impatient with them, would that deepen your relationship with them? Or indeed make them feel better? Or supposing we were to give out provisions from the community larder and say to people, well, I hope you're grateful for what people have generously given. Would that bring people closer to Jesus? <coughs> Unimaginably. Suppose that Jesus had died on the cross and not said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Deeds plus love. Claire taught me a positive lesson in this regard when we were in Germany before I was a Christian, about 1995, I think. She made a wonderful wooden carving with a scripture painted on it, inscribed, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 1 Peter 4.9. Shortly afterwards, a member of our German house group was in need of temporary accommodation as his family went back to England, but his work asked him to stay in Germany for a few weeks. Claire, of course, in Christian love, offered him a bed in our house, and I did agree to that. But I wasn't that sure about the outcome. I resented the fact that he was there eating with the family when I got home tired from work, and he didn't wash very often. But I think her wonderful example of loving care for our friend helped me to accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord a couple of years later. Indeed, what I contend is that the lesson of love is the core of Jesus' ministry, and our belief must center itself on it. We have to go further than the creed, in other words, to reach the heart of Christian faith and what belief in Jesus should mean in our lives. Love led Jesus, who is equal to God, in Paul's letter he mentions, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Love led Jesus to help those in need. Love led Jesus to have compassion on everyone he met. Love led Jesus again, as Paul wrote, to humble himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus had love. <coughs> Jesus was love. He is love. And he will be love. <coughs> I'm just reminded of those words we said earlier. Is not the nature of Christ from Bernard Levin enough to pierce to the soul anyone with a soul to be pierced? He still looms over the world, his message still clear, his pity still infinite his consolation still effective, his words still full of glory, wisdom, and love. And we have an <coughs> in our scripture the wonderful and well-known passage on love in 1 Corinthians 13. <coughs> if we can have that on the screen. if this is the equivalent of Emma falling over and grazing her knee. <coughs> well, I shall do my best. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails, 
I'm asking us to read this out together, but instead of love and it, we say Jesus, okay? Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, Jesus does not envy, Jesus does not boast, Jesus is not proud, Jesus does not dishonor others, Jesus is not self-seeking, Jesus is not easily angered, Jesus keeps no record of wrongs, Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Here's one that's a bit more challenging. Can we read I instead of love or Jesus? I am patient. I am kind. I know I can't. But friends, this is what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is showing us the perfect example of how to love others, and he commands us to do so. John 13, 34 to 5 says, A new command, he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If we truly believe in Jesus, it will be by our love that this becomes evident. The love he showed, the love God wants us to show as his bearers of his image here on earth. The love we must choose to show. Out of free will, love is not love when it is forced. For us as a church, it seems to me there's plenty of need to show that love, even in affluent Pembury. Dan has mentioned, and we've been praying for some areas where we're active, not least the wonderful initiative of the Youth Cafe, the regular Kingdom Cafe that's going to start next month. There are others where we might need to step up to the plate. There's going to be a lot of financial need when the universal credit payments are reduced again in October. And I think that will be a challenge for us as a church to be lovingly generous to those in need of the con in the congregation, but also the wider community, by money, by uh, the food bank. And as Paul wrote in line with our theme, God loves a cheerful giver. If we're going to contribute, we do it cheerfully. Apparently the word cheerful in Greek is hilarios, hilarious giving. That will be a challenge too. But as I close, let me focus rather on each of us as individuals. Trying to do the whole of that Corinthians passage at once is a bit too much. Do you want to put it up again, Tracy? But here's a challenge. Let's try one at a time to be more like our Savior and Lord, showing Jesus' love to one another and to him. The love he showed to us and which he enjoys within the Trinity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So yeah, let's be patient. Then, we could try also to be kind. And then continue, not envying, not proud, not dishonoring others, not self-seeking being not easily angered, 
keeping no record of wrongs, not delighting in evil, rejoicing with the truth, protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering, and never failing. Try putting it on your mobile and look at it every day. I think that could be really beneficial. I've been trying to do that, not every day, but on and off, certainly. So yeah, there's a challenge. So let us pray as I close. Thank you, Lord, that you gave strong reasons to believe in your life on earth and your status as a son of God. We pray that as a response, we as individuals and as a church may shine forth in this dark world by showing the same love for one another and for those outside that you showed so perfectly in your life on this earth and as scripture teaches us. In your mighty name, we pray. Amen. I'm going to hand over to the band now.